It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Welcome, welcome to it. Welcome to it. The Bible Geek. Uh, I'm your uh, host, Robert M. Price. Robert M. Price, host of the Bible Geek. Amazing from each of the tribes of Israel. And of course, this was a pseudepigraph. Uh, he didn't write it. There's the incarnation of God. Right? Why in this specific just an amazing book? The Bible, the Bible Geek. Price, Robert M. Price, host the Bible Geek. The Bible, Bible, the Bible, the Bible, the Bible Geek. Robert M. Price, Robert M. Price, Robert M. Price, Price, host the Bible Geek. Time for another Bible Geek with your host, Robert M. Price. And that is me, in case you were wondering. Uh, like to uh, tackle some questions. It's been a long time because of my fall and sciatica and all that stuff, but let's forget about it. Here's a question I had left over from last time. It was sort of embedded in a question that I did answer, but then suddenly realized that the, this part of it I had just skipped over. And uh, so, um, oh boy, the rest of it, I forget who uh, who asked this one, but he immediately noticed its absence from the recorded version and uh, reminded me of it. I had already realized that at the time. So uh, here you go. That's um, a good one. Uh, I heard the comedian Ricky Gervais claim to be an agnostic atheist it's hyphenated. Uh, I've never heard the term before and haven't found a definition that I understand. Can you give it a whirl? Well, I did not hear that, um, and I'm not really familiar with the expression, but I think I uh, know what it's what it suggests to me anyway, and I wouldn't be surprised if this is what uh, Gervais said. Uh, I think that uh, the difference between an atheist and an agnostic is sort of arbitrary and uh, that ultimately most atheists are uh, basically agnostic. Now, what is the difference? Well, how does a theist know or how does he or why does he think there is a God? Um <clears throat> I know that you know that there are all sorts of arguments for that from Thomas Aquinas and St. Anselm and various others. But ultimately, I think most believers in God are just that. They believe in God, in theism, right? That there is some kind of a divine being far transcending mere humanity and that this God um, created the world, etc., right? Uh, And uh, they know it's not... um, plainly evident. Uh, I mean, they they think like in Romans chapter one, that looking at the grandeur of the world and the general uh, inexplicability of it, um, I mean, just look at human reproduction. uh, That I mean, I find that 
the more amazing, the more I think of it, because uh, it is so complex and astonishing what works and why and so forth. That uh, I have to admit, boy, that's uh, that's that makes you wonder what on earth could have could account for this. Uh, and uh, when people say, "Well, look, it's got to be a creator God," I can't say they're fools. Uh, it doesn't really explain it because uh, God, uh, even if he exists, is not um, easily explainable. You can't really explain something by something else you can't pretend to explain. But um, it's uh, usually it's an inference like that. Uh, well, boy, I don't know what else it could be. Uh, maybe there is a God, right? But most people would say that they believe in God because uh, they think they should. Uh, I think it's safer to like in Pascal's wager. Uh, but um, they know that there is either a step or a leap of faith uh, where one simply decides that, uh, yeah, okay, I believe there is a God. I'm joining that team. Uh, that's going to be my defining assumption now. And you you uh, uh, probably know that you can't deduce this with mathematical certainty. Uh, you, you can't really prove it, but you know, like uh, William James said, you're going to live as a believer or as a non-believer. It's really, you know, a forced choice. Okay, people do say, okay, I believe it. That's it. Well, you might say that uh, an atheist has decided to believe that there is no God. And uh, there are some, I think, that would say, oh, yeah, I just, uh, I believe there is no God. But I sort of doubt that any atheist that has ever thought about it has uh, really chosen that course. Uh, you're just going to believe on faith. Hallelujah, there is no God. Uh, I doubt it. Um, so what's the mediating position? Or I don't know if the, that's even proper. But if you don't want to go with faith, either that there is a God or that there is not, uh, I think the alternative uh, is agnosticism. And uh, what does agnosticism mean? Well, just like a theist, the a negating uh, prefix, right? No theist, no godist. Um, an agnostic is one without the gnosis, the knowledge. And an agnostic, um, again, with uh, William James's terminology, he thinks that... Uh, that it's a live possibility, a live um, option to say that there is a God. But uh, it seems, uh, as far as anybody has ever been able to tell, there's no uh, real reason to uh, conclude that there is a God, that you can look at all the evidence you want as inductively as you want. It doesn't really prove that there is a God or even make it very likely uh, so, and you, you feel like you really do not have the option, if you want to be intellectually honest, of just leaping the gap and saying that, um, well, okay, I guess I got to jump in one direction or another, so I'll go with either theism or atheism. 
but it is a live option. Uh, it's it's not absurd that there's a God. There's not even uh, or there's not even um, a real improbability about it. Uh, the uh, the agnostic said, "Well, I'd I'd like to know." Uh, it would, of course, make a great deal of difference. Uh, it's an important issue, and there might be a God, but. As long as it's not really secure, I can't pretend that it is. So I'm just going to have to hold it open for now, and uh, I'm interested in anything anybody can tell me. Uh, if there, if you can show that there is a God, hey, I'll be first in line to believe it, but I do need good reason to believe it, and so far there isn't. But that doesn't make atheism true by default. Uh, you, um, you, like Nietzsche said, you... Uh, have to have uh, two categories, truth and fiction. And there isn't any real truth. Uh, but uh, you have to hold open that as a category, lest you begin to think that your fictions are the truth. Uh, and and they become not possibilities, but assumptions. And that's intellectually dishonest, too. So, um, so there's this holding pattern. Now, it's true that, as William James said, you are going to wind up living uh, without belief or with belief. Uh, you, you've got to go in one direction or the other. You can't just remain, in, in terms of your living, your values, like the proverbial donkey, uh, forever hesitating between two different haystacks. Which one? Uh, I think I'll go with A. No, no, uh, B looks pretty good, too. Uh, geez, how am I going to decide this? Well, that could be uh, uh, agnosticism and uh, there's uh, an ancient precedent for that, the ancient skeptic school of philosophy, where um, uh, Pyrrho, the guy that started it, said, boy, there's been a lot of debate over this, whether there is a God, whether there's a life after death, whether there's an, uh, an objective standard of morality that we can know. Uh, but uh, it's never been settled. Nobody's ever been able to demonstrate uh, the case for... Uh, any particular position, if they had been able to set forth one opinion in a definitive, convincing way, there wouldn't be any more debate. That ought to be a big clue that you cannot demonstrate these things uh, one way or the other, but luckily you don't really need to. Um, probability, um, your assessment of the risks of, of an action one way or the other, uh, all these things, you don't really need to know any of that stuff either way in order to live a decent, practicable life in this world. What's going to come after? We don't know. And there's no use pretending that we do. So uh, the ancient skeptics were uh, uh, saying pretty much the same thing that Thomas Henry Huxley did much later, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years later, that you can rest content uh, in life with you don't have to know, so therefore you needn't pretend that you do. Well, is there an atheist agnostic uh, where, where you could hyphenate him, join him together? Yes, there is. And I think this is simply the lack of belief in God, not because you're willful about it or you like the idea of no God rather than believing in God. This would simply mean that uh, you don't see 
uh, any particular reason to believe in God, to take the hypothesis seriously. Uh, it's not a live option, as uh, William James said. That, oh yeah, there might be a God, but really, what are the chances? I mean, there might be unicorns, uh, but uh, there might be genies, but I've never seen anything that would really incline me to believe it. I, I can't rule it out. I mean, you know, consider our situation in the vast universe and look at the limitations of our knowledge. Uh, it, uh, it's pretty hard to see how uh, it's very probable that there's a God. Could be. Richard Carrier wrote this terrific essay some years ago, and I think it's now in one of his books, where he says, let's see what we mean by God. What sort of claim are we making about reality and how it will work? Uh, and, for instance, divine providence and so forth. If God is uh, lovingly in control of the world, well, what sort of thing you think would happen in it? Uh, well, uh, you wouldn't see a whole lot of the horror and disaster and depravity uh, in the world, would you? And, well, you could try rationalize it away. Oh, God's uh, standards are not ours, but then you, you, words are coming to mean nothing. And I think Richard made a very good case that uh, it just looks highly improbable that any sort of a God exists, or even to say what that would mean once you start redefining things to get God off the hook, right? And so, uh, yeah, we don't know that there is no God. You can't prove it, but it, does anything really suggest to you that there is? I mean, other than peer support for the belief or the fact that you were raised to believe it. I mean, those aren't reasons in the sense where, where they're causes, but not justifications of one's belief in God. So I think an agnostic atheist would be one who says, look, I don't know. Ultimately, nobody does. I, we don't see how you could, but it could be. You know, and uh, but uh, in the face of so little reason to believe it, I I have to go on the uh, the working hypothesis that there isn't. I mean, it's like uh, do do I know whether or not the world is going to be destroyed in the next hour? Uh, well, it's certainly possible it could be, and in a number of ways. But uh, there's no particular reason to think so, as far as I can see. And I think that would be agnostic atheism, not a faith position. Hallelujah, I know there's no God. Uh, no, not not like that. I mean, I'm sure there are so-called, uh, self-called atheists that believe there isn't a God, but that's, uh, I think that's very difficult for anybody that's uh, considered the evidence and who knows they need to consider evidence. They have, and they just don't see it as a serious possibility. Could be, right? But who the heck knows? So maybe that's what uh, Ricky Gervais had in mind. He's certainly a smart guy. Uh, but other than that, I don't know. Or he could just mean, uh, I don't really know which to call myself, so let's cover all the territory. Don't know. Very good question, though. Uh, okay, here's one from Dr. Barton. Uh, he says, I was again picking through Robert Connor's book, Magic and the New Testament, and was rereading chapter eight, A Darker Sorcery. In this chapter, Connor explored uh, hints of Judaic and Christian necromancy, including accusations that Jesus himself was a necromancer. Some or much of this is taken from Carl 
H. Kralings Was Jesus Accused of Necromancy? Journal of Biblical Literature, Volume 59, Number 2, uh, June 1940, um, pages 147 to 157. The question of Jesus as a necromancer aside, after reading some of Connor's reinterpretations of Mark 6, 14 through 16, uh, the uh, the verses in the usual sense, read the usual way, uh, go this way. By the way, necromancy means you're seeking information, perhaps about the future, uh, from the the ghosts of the dead. Right? Okay. Mark six fourteen. And King Herod had heard of him, for his name was spread abroad, and he said that. John the Baptist was risen from the dead, and therefore mighty works do show forth in him. Uh, um, next verse. Others said, That is Elias. That is Elijah. And others said, That's a prophet, or like one of the prophets. But when Herod heard thereof, he said, It is John whom I beheaded. Uh, he is risen from the dead. So here are a combination of Connor's notes and mine. One, the therefore mighty works of Mark 6.14 can and perhaps should be translated as because of that mighty works. Uh, in other words, the fact that he's risen explains the occurrence of these miracles. Two, the verb for risen, agero, is used in Greek literature for the raising up of spirits and ghosts. Three, the and he said that of 614 is confusing. Connor and most others take this statement to be won by Herod, but that is awkward given the first half of the verse. In addition, the word lego uh, is conjugated as uh, which is, uh, to say, right, is conjugated as elegon in both 614 and in 615, where it is usually translated as others. Uh, yeah, uh, now Greek is not strong uh, with this junior Bible geek, but the logic of conjugation in most European and Middle Eastern languages requires the classification of subject be the same in both verses, singular, plural, first, second, third person, as long as the verb is not degenerate, as many are in English. You know, in common use, people sort of smooth out the, the grammar, and it's not quite a use of double negatives and stuff like that. Either way, the subject of lego in all three phrases is unlikely to be Herod. Not knowing if elegon indicates singular or plural, I propose that the subject be translated as some in 614. Four, Connor pointed out that the phrase, uh, it is John whom I beheaded, he is risen from the dead, uh, it can be translated in 616 as implied interrogatives. That is, is it John whom I beheaded? Is he risen from the dead? Yeah, that, that's certainly possible. Compiling those points, these verses can be rewritten as, And King Herod had heard of him, for his name was spread abroad, and some said that, that John the Baptist was raised up from the dead, and because of that mighty works do show forth in him, Jesus. Uh, Others said that it is Elias, and others said that it is a prophet, or as one of the prophets. 
But when Herod heard thereof, he said, Is it John whom I beheaded? Is he risen from the dead? And these verses take on a very different and potentially necromantic context. Connor argued that at least some stories surrounding Jesus at the time of the writing of the Gospel of Mark must have involved the accusation that Jesus gained his power through necromancy, specifically through the raising of John's spirit and employing it as a uh, paradros, as described in the second spell of the Greek magical papyri, 142. Considering Jesus' command over the pneumata, spirits, daimonon, demons, and the raising of dead people, this is not as unlikely as we have been indoctrinated to believe. Um, yeah, invoking his spirit. Okay, uh, moving on to the reasons for John the Baptist's death in Mark 6, 17-28. The stated reasons were that John had offended Herodias and indirectly Herod. In rereading this part of the story, I noticed that Herodias was unusually specific in her indirect request from her husband. Um, on a, oh, let's see, this is a quote. Uh, what do you, you know, what should I ask for, Mom, as a reward? On a platter, the head of John the Baptist. So I looked up more information on platter, pinox. In the New Testament, it was used only by Mark in relation to this story, and once more in Luke 11.39. And here's that text. And the Lord said unto him, uh, Now do you Pharisees make the outside of the cup and the platter make clean the outside of the cup and the platter, but your inward part is full of ravening and wickedness. Although its use in the Gospel of Luke does not seem to be directly related to its use in the Gospel of Mark, it is interesting uh, in that it was used in conjunction with cup, poterion, which often referred to cups of special significance, such as at the Last Supper in the Garden of Gethsemane and the cup of God's wrath. It might be a simple utility to have used poterion and pinox together, but Matthew saw something in its use that caused him to switch out pinox with parpsis uh, in Matthew's parallel version of the verse. Matthew twenty three twenty five. For reasons that I will return to in a moment, I would like to suggest that the Lucan version envisioned a cup on the platter with its magical implications, while the Matthean version reduced this to a cup and plate held side by side and to be washed after having been eaten from. Uh, back to the meaning of pinox. Uh, while it does derive from piné and can indicate a wooden board, I found that many of the uses of pinox were of it in its later form, a metal tablet upon which images or writings, often laws for public display, were engraved. Uh, in Epictetus's Discourse 1, 19, 4, uh, Pinachion was washed and wiped, possibly just a plate, Interestingly, a beheading was mentioned in 1.19.6, though it, only it is only tangentially related to the Pinox. In Plutarch's Romulus, Life of Romulus, you know, uh, 12.3, uh, 
Pinaka Methodon, Tablet of Investigation, translated by Perrin as Casting Nativities, that is, horoscopes. Uh, let's see. Okay. Um, in Strabo's Geography 8615, a temple to Asclepius in Epidaurus was described as full of the sick as well as on a Caimanon Pinacon, votive tablets or tablets of dedication, quote, on which treatments are recorded. This is, I believe, similar to the graffiti mentioned by you on other episodes of this podcast. You know, testimonials in the Asclepiums. In Plato's Critias 120c, Critias spoke of judgments in the Temple of Poseidon, which were written upon golden tablets, and must have had some degree of mystical power, since they were witnessed by Poseidon, you know, like him authenticating the uh, testified uh, healing. In Aeschylus's uh, Suppliant Women, 463, the chorus mentioned Pinoxi, adorned with images of gods and hung from statues of the gods. In Homer's Iliad, uh, 6, 169 through 170, there was the line, uh, To slay him he forbear, for his soul had awe of that, but he sent him to Lycia and gave him baneful tokens, graving in a folded, folded tablet many signs and deadly, uh, and bade him show these to his own wife's father, that he might be slain. This referred to the wife of King Proteus trying to seduce the hero Bellerophon. I've always loved that name. Uh, when Be Bellerophon rejected her, she tried to convince her husband to kill him. King Proteus was too afraid to try to kill him and instead seems to have given him a tablet engraved with deadly signs. Most scholars tend to believe that, in essence, King Proteus claimed that he was sending Bellerophon to his father-in-law with a recommendation, but in actuality since fa sent false declaration of the evil deeds of Bellerophon. While that is possible, an equally likely suggestion is that the tablet was inscribed with symbols and incantations for a curse. Whether or not the tablet was a real, quote-unquote, or fake curse, Bellerophon's delivery of it to his father-in-law would be taken as Bellerophon trying to kill his father-in-law through magic, a crime punishable by death. Thus, outside the Bible, there's a moderately strong association of Pinox with magic both benevolent and malevolent. If we apply this back into the New Testament uses, then in the Gospel of Mark, we have Herodias questioning a powerful mystic's head on a magical inscribed tablet. I'm sorry, requesting a powerful mystic's head on a magical inscribed tablet. Since unjustly slain people, especially heroes, make the most powerful ghosts or spirits, as Connor says on page, and page 208, dead by violence and unburied, this seems a strong formula for the creation of an oracular head. Um, by the way, this is what uh, they used to say about the Knights Templar, that they had a, a head preserved that would answer questions. Given that Herodias seems to have had some reputation for Herod Antipas's success, 
um, let's see, given that Herodias, that's his wife, seems to have had some reputation for Herod Antipas's success, that's her husband, King Herod, so-called, it would not be unreasonable that stories circulated that she provided advice to her husband through her possession of John the Baptist's head and spirit. This possibility wraps back to Mark 6:16 when Herod is asked, "Is it John the ba-? when Herod asked, I'm sorry, is it John whom I beheaded? Is he risen from the dead?" If Connor's speculation that Herod was asking a question is correct, then this line could be taken as reflecting Herod's incredulity. He knew that his wife was the one who had raised and controlled John. Therefore, Jesus could have been neither the controller of John's spirit nor his reincarnation. Also taking this Herodias speculation uh, to Luke's and Matthew's interpretations, we can now see why Matthew would have wanted to remove Pinox from 23-25. Luke um, 11-39, on the other hand, might have missed the implication that a cup and platter might have been understood by hearers familiar with the trappings of magic as a cup on an inscribed magical uh, tablet and that cup would have been a divining cup such as that used by Joseph in Genesis 44-2. Christopher Farawan, in his Necromancy Goes Underground, uh, The Disguise of Skull and Corpse Divination in the Paris Magical Papyri, PGM 4, 1928-2144, in Mantique, Studies in Ancient Divination pointed out, and here's the quote, Various comments in the Mishnah show, moreover, that divination by skulls undoubtedly survived among the post-exile Jews down into the late antique period. The Tractate Sanhedrin of the Babylonian Tablet, for example, discusses the two kinds of necromancer, both him who conjures up the dead by soothsaying and one who consults skulls, pages 258 and 277. Thus, at least the concept of a divining skull was in the Jewish mindset contemporaneous with the time of Herodias and the Gospels. Furthermore, since magical cups and skulls were sometimes interchangeable, as we know most often from Viking and horror movies, it is possible that Luke 11.39 unknowingly made use of a phrase that was sometimes a coded reference to skull divination. Uh, let's see. Yeah, that that could be. And also, Luke might have known that uh, this was a magical association and Given his uh, hostility toward magic, as in the book of Acts, when a bunch of new converts from um, Ephesus burned, he had a bonfire of of magic books. Um, He didn't like it. Of course, Simon Magus doesn't much like him either, right? And that's magic. And there were beliefs that Jesus was a magician, even among some Christians. And if Luke didn't like this, as he certainly didn't, he might have wanted to make it more of an... Uh, of a mundane thing. So yeah, that's uh, quite likely. I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, in the apocryphal text about Simon Magus, it says that he ra- that he uh, I think uh, caused the spirit of a dead boy to speak uh, oracles 
answer questions that he asked. Uh, so, yeah, that would certainly make sense to me. Yeah, okay, thank you. Um, let me see if... Uh, um, boy, this is... Oh, okay, how about uh, Richard Tracy, a PhD, by the way? Uh, he answers... Uh, I'm sorry, I am trying to answer uh, his uh, question. He says, after another reading of the Torah and Joshua, I can't help but notice a few similarities between Moses and Joshua. And by a few, I mean 22 direct parallels and counting. Both characters share the role of leader of the people. Um, uh, let's see. Uh... Uh, uh, usher them along in their march towards civilization, give the teaching of a god to the people, and so on. These similarities and a certain curiosity concerning their names got me thinking. Did Moses and Joshua share a common evolutionary ancestor who is now lost to us? The more I read about these two figures, the more I became convinced that they are originally the same person. So here's my thinking. Once upon a time, the Canaanites had a demigod folk hero, a half-mortal son of Dagon, um, named Fishy Bob, who helped establish civilization in the land, perhaps even establishing the first settlement at Ugarit. He went on like uh, Oanes to pass along the wisdom of his fishy father to the people, helping them settle down from their nomadic ways and become farmers and city dwellers. He worked miracles such as parting water so that masses of people could cross and altering the weather. He held the sun still in the sky or turned it black and so on. Stories of Fishy Bob would, were carried to Egypt, perhaps even by the Hyksos, though I suspect it occurred much later. There the story became Egyptianized. The character took on an Egyptian name as he was connected with a local deity, someone like uh, uh, Knemu, who controlled the Nile and was pictured with a ram head, which would fit nicely uh, with the... Uh, horned Moses we see in Exodus 34. Um, this precursor to Moses, Knemus says, even served as a priest to this god as is hinted in Exodus. The story grew and changed and later made its way back to Israel, where he became a patron hero for displaced Jews returning home. As with many elements of the Bible, the editors now had two versions of the same story. Knemuzes evolved in Egypt and was a favorite of exiled Jews, and Fishy Bob uh, stayed back home and a favorite, as a favorite of the locals. Um, one linked to an Egyptian god, one still linked with Dagon. The Egyptian deity, Knemu, or whoever he was linked with, was removed to create Moses, and a Yahwistic connection was added to the other hero, so that Fishy Bob became Joshua, son of the fish. Um, Nun, or Nun, 
fish. The editors were then free to stitch the two versions of the same demigod into the fictive national history that was being created. Fishy Bob, the son of Dagon, was lost. In his place were his two literary clones, each tailor-made for a different group of Semites. Uh, this would certainly explain the similarities between the characters, but also the differences. A punishment for Moses uh, was invented to keep him out of the promised land, a symbolic rejection of the alien practices of Egypt and their strange gods, while the Joshua figures prominently in the formation of their nation. What saith the geek? Am I on to something, or have I gone mad? Or is all this common knowledge, and I'm just the last one to the party? Also, might you have a book on yourself relating to the Moses-Joseph connection? I certainly can't find one. Hmm. She, I, that does not ring a bell. Um... Uh, let's see. Uh, P.S. Thanks for all you do on this podcast, The Lovecraft Geek, your books and your debates. Your work has been a huge part of my learning over these last 15 years, and without your books, my own podcast wouldn't exist. I'm proud to say that I'm now able to show my appreciation on Patreon, and I encourage everyone who listens regularly to do the same if they can. Uh, that's pretty darn good. Thanks. Uh, you know, I'm real open to theories about the, um, mitosis, the production of new biblical characters by, uh, you know, variant versions of stories arising. And then the, uh, the collectors of these tales, not recognizing that they are different versions and uh, thinking, well, they're just similar characters and similar stories, but they all must have happened. This might well be one of them, and, and it is just hard to ignore these parallels, as you say. I mean, uh, Joshua is depicted as a second Moses, and uh, you, you do have to wonder, among other possibilities, whether... Moses and Joshua were the same guy originally, and somehow they've uh, uh, they've been uh, made similar but different characters. Uh, it's especially if you think that uh, Joshua and Moses were both originally gods, and um, that in fact uh, Moses itself, uh, as you point out, sounds like a theophoric um, uh, suffix like Tutmosis, uh, the pharaoh named for his divine father, Thoth, means Thoth has begotten him. Ramesses means uh, Ra has begotten him. And so it looks like Moses is what's left of a condensed Egyptian name. So uh, who knows how all the strands uh, fit together. Um I wonder how you got fishy. Bob suddenly reminds me of Sideshow Bob. Could be. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, one other question from uh, from Richard. He says, what New Testament verses enable premillennialists 
post-millennialists and non-millennialists to argue their competing interpretations of scripture. What is the history of premillennial and post-millennial interpretations? Who are some well-known premillennialists and post-millennialists? Well, basically, post-millennialism, uh, of course, that means that uh, uh, when Christ returns to earth, it will have been transformed into the kingdom of God through the uh, pious efforts of Christians, uh, preparing it and getting it ready for him. And here is, uh, I think, um, the... Uh, manifestation of the the parables of the landlord who goes away to a foreign country and when he comes back uh, he finds that the stewards he has put in charge have uh, at least some of them have uh, like the parable of the talents would be one they've not been faithful and they've got hell to pay but the others have been and so they say hey that that post-millennials would say that sounds like Christ is coming back. You don't know when. It may take a long time. But when he does, uh, your fate will be decided on the basis of uh, what you have done to uh, with, with what God has entrusted to you, namely your life. Have you uh, been trying to promote his kingdom? Uh, and uh, and if you did, good. Uh, uh, ten cities to you, uh, which sort of implies you're dealing with a millennial kingdom or something, right? And if you haven't, well, out with you. Um, Premillennialists say uh, that might be good, but it could just be a kind of an analogy for um, people who have used their life for, to do God's will without any reference that they, the, to um, Christ being away and coming back, because that could just be part of the... Uh, the setting of the parable it's just trying to it by having the the king away it just means okay you're on like john f kennedy said uh here on earth god's work must be must truly be our own it, it doesn't necessarily have a corporate eschatological dimension here's what's going to happen to the world in the future collectively could just mean it's it's individual eschatology. You will one day have to face the music, and uh, here's what may happen to you. Uh, so it doesn't have to be um, corporate eschatology, the premillennialists would say. Uh, whereas there are other uh, passages, um, some in the epistles, and uh, depending on how you interpret it, the, the Gospel of John, Christ is coming back. Uh, and uh, that will round off the the the, uh, the history of the human race. But you know, you uh, that could apply to postmillennialism too, um, because there are postmillennialists say, yes, he is coming back. We're not demythologizing this like uh, some of the social gospel liberals did. That oh, Christ isn't literally coming back, but his uh, Christianity will permeate the world and redeem it. Uh, he, he, that's not all uh, postmillennialists. So, is there anything that that would describe the? Uh, well, how about the element of of um, the uh, a gradual growth and increase of the kingdom of God uh, before a final judgment? Premillennialists would say that can't be because in the synoptic apocalypse, you know, Mark 13, etc., 
and uh, in uh, the Thessalonian epistles and uh, in the book of Revelation, it's pretty darn clear that the, on the eve of the return of Christ, things will have become uh, disastrously horrific. Uh, the triumph of evil as well as the, uh, the judgments of God upon the earth. So, you know, where's your basis for things getting better and better? Uh, now, the... Uh, the premillennialists would say, well, there is a scriptural basis, the parables of growth, where, uh, like the mustard seed parable, the way postmillennialists interpret this is to say that the seed is planted and uh, gradually it uh, it germinates and day after day, the, the farmer doesn't know how, uh, and he's just got to be ready for when it turns out, hey, everything's ripe, time for harvest. Or the parable of the the uh, the uh, leaven that gradually permeates the uh, the the, uh, the bread dough and so forth, and uh, that's uh, that means yeah, it's gonna take a while and it's a gradual process, not a catastrophe bursting forth and ending history as we know it. Uh, let's see. Now, it's pretty obvious that a whole lot of these passages are ambiguous once you raise this question to them. I mean, they're not unam I'm sorry, they are unambiguous insofar as on any reading you have the notion that you had better do your work to advance uh, the, the work of God in the world, or when it comes, comes time to pay the piper, uh, you're going to wish you had. Uh, so the um, uh, you've also got uh, uh, the uh, post-millennial business in uh, um, well, what am I thinking of here? It's in uh, um, I don't even, I'm getting confused between two of these theories now. There's amillennialism and there's postmillennialism. And um, in 1 Corinthians 15, it says that uh, Christ will come back uh, to uh, raise up those who, and Adam all uh, died in Christ, all will be made alive, but each in his due order. Uh, first Christ raised from the dead, uh, then those who are his. And after that, uh, the uh, he Christ hands over the kingdom to the Father, and God will be all in all. Wait a minute. After the resurrection and so on, he hands over the ultimate rulership to his Father. Uh, what about Jesus is Lord? Isn't he already Lord? So I believe Martin Luther held this view that this, the period of history in which we now live, was the millennium. Uh, and so uh, the final thing will be, uh, uh, the final triumph will be Christ leaving his throne uh, and ye abdicating in favor of his father. So the millennium is now, there will be no future millennium. Uh, but in Ephesians, it says that uh, Christ has received the name um, that uh, above every name and so forth uh, through all the ages. Well, that kind of implies uh, premillennialism. Uh, but in all these cases, what they're doing is to try to 
gather all the the passages that seem to bear on eschatology and the return of Christ and uh, to they have to harmonize them for two reasons. All these passages are very brief, abrupt, and even fragmentary in that there's no real context given because the original writer and readers apparently n- knew the basic background, the, the larger puzzle into which these passages fit. But since there are so few of them, it's it's difficult to know where to start. Uh, is there a common eschatology in the New Testament? I think not. And so uh, they're fragmentary and they're ambiguous. It's hard to tell. Uh, and uh, so, and it's amazing to me that any uh, the partisans of any of these views can be so dogmatic about it. It's like they think they're entitled. And I've actually heard this said by some fundamentalist teachers that if it seems ambiguous, you just have to uh, come up with what seems like the best possibility and then start dogmatizing because surely God would not leave us on our own uncertain about an important thing. So we can be certain or pretend that we're certain after we've done our best. That's that's uh, ridiculous, it seems to me. Uh, okay, if I were more coherent uh, tonight, I could probably make more sense of that. Um, I guess I better get going here. I uh, better save my energy, but I hope to get uh, back with you pretty soon for another exciting episode of The Bible Geek. Thanks for being with me, and I sure enough appreciate it. Bye-bye. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.